Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Rodolfo Novak, co-founder and CEO of CoinKite, the company behind the cold card Bitcoin hardware wallet and several other innovative products popular among Bitcoin enthusiasts. Rodolfo has been an entrepreneur in Bitcoin for over a decade now and has a ton of unique insights regarding building a business in the space, as well as on Bitcoin's history and emergence as a cultural phenomenon. It's apparent that the quote Bitcoin ethos permeates how he and the team operate their business. And as such, it's great to see how well their efforts have been received by Bitcoiners the world over. Enjoy. Rodolfo, how are you, man? It's been a while. Hey, it's been uh, it's been uh, a few days, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How was your Christmas? It was it was fun. It was fun. Uh, things in Canada stable enough to enjoy a nice picturesque Christmas right now? Well, I, I mean, it, you know, Canada is weird because it's both like fairly free place, but at the same time, we have a lot of bullshit. It's it's just a strange it's a strange combo. It's definitely not like Europe, you know, where yeah. they have like real restrictions, but it's still quite like annoying. Yeah. And you can get, it seems like you can get away from it all in Canada quite a bit. There's a lot of empty space in Canada, I guess. And you can, uh, you can take advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, 99% of the population lives within a few kilometers of the border of the US. So like, as soon as you go north a bit, my, my place up north, it's like, there's no people, nothing. <laughs> COVID yeah. doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm super glad we, we put this together, man. I've been wanting to do it for a while, but I think for people that may be not familiar with you and your story, uh, why don't you just give a brief intro and then we'll kind of dive into the beginning of the story and, and maybe bring it up to today. And you've been in the space for a super long time, so <clears throat> we might have to move gloss over a few points, but why don't you, uh, tell everybody what you do and where you're from? Yeah. So we, we started CoinKite, uh, Definitely over 10 years ago, I think was near block 100,000 plus. Um, and uh, we were essentially uh, uh, big O before big O. We had uh, uh, a system uh, for, for essentially being the backend wallet for exchanges like BitMEX used to be uh, uh, on our system, for example, way back then. Uh, we were probably about 5% of all Bitcoin transactions. Uh, in those days, and uh, you know, we as we personally progressed and and sort of like the earliness of our solutions at the time, we had Bitcoin debit cards, Bitcoin machines, all kinds of crap. Uh, some of them were too early for its time. Some of them were not things we wanted to do, and uh, we sort of like moved on from those and sort of just really focused on the hardware. Uh, uh, quite a few years ago now, and. Uh, and the, the business grew uh, in a way that was sort of like the way we wanted to run a business. And uh, so, so that's sort of like the, the short story. Yeah. And for people that aren't familiar with, you know, you or CoinKite, you know, just for a little bit of context, you guys make, you're like, I, I said this to you recently, it's kind of like the Duncan's toy chest for Bitcoiners, right? Like you make all <laughs> of these great, you know, some are very utilitarian, like, you know, hardware wallets and some are just fun gadgets that, you know, Bitcoiners would like to have and play around with. So, you know, it's cool to see what the company has morphed into over the years. But, you know, CoinKite started in 11. Is that right? Uh, well, it's complicated. 13. It was kind of before that. Uh, 
we we started with a few different names and sort of like eventually landed at Quankite. Uh, it was BTC Look, BTC Data. Um, we, we, yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. So, so it's definitely pre, pre about 2010 as a Bitcoin company. Yeah. I, I know you've done a bunch of these and you've, you've explained this story before, but I do want to dig into it a little bit. So you, you, I think you came across Bitcoin the first time in the Slashdot article. Is that right? That's right. Uh, that, that's, uh, I, it might have been, uh, Peter, uh, my, my business partner who, who sent me the article at that time, uh, on, on Slashdot. And was that uh, 2010 or 2011? 2010. I think 2010. So what was it at that time? You know, and I've heard you also say like, wow, you know, this is money in my computer. And that's kind of what was the light bulb moment for you was. But what was, you know, give me a little bit more insight around why, because it was, you know, people forget that Bitcoin, Bitcoin seems so obvious to a lot of people now and it's becoming more and more so. But, you know, when something is as nascent as it was in 2010 with like, you know, a market cap only in the tens of millions, you know, it's, it's very easy to dismiss as like, sure, it's cool, but it's never going to go anywhere. It's, it's insignificant. It's a drop in, in, in the ocean. So, you know, what else was going through your mind when you actually decided like this was interesting enough to actually devote time to, right, to leave whatever job or, or company you were with before and, and actually commit to this? Like what gave you the confidence to do that? Yeah, so I still remember like reading the article for the first time and I'm like, well, this is really cool. There's absolutely no way this this thing is gonna work, right? I mean, it, it's like, you know, in those days, if I describe Bitcoin to you, you'd think I'm literally out of my mind, right? Um, and that's how probably ninety percent of the people who looked and and saw Bitcoin those days sort of thought of it, right? Like, you know, and there were bugs. Like, if you go look at the cold, it was like an absolute clusterfuck. There was like, there was. Uh, poker inside the Bitcoin Core client. <laughs> it was yeah. it was something like you know like like a cool nerd toy, right? Like and and, and you know due to its um, its let's call it fragility, right? Initially, it, it was like something I was very interested in, um, but it was very complicated, and and some some parts of it you know didn't make too much sense to me yet. And you know I don't have an economics background, um, and uh, and uh, you know and and the bugs and everything else. So it's like you know, great, this is really cool, but like it's like you know I'm not ready to sort of like like jump in into this, right? So so we do what we do best um, as a company because we were already a company back then doing other things pre Bitcoin, um, pre Bitcoin, Coin, like and, basically CoinKite's predecessor was already operating. Yes. Yes. What were you guys doing? Uh, we were we were making like apps uh, for all kinds of different things. We were making some contract dev. Like the, we were sort of essentially trying to bake things. Not financial. Not financial. Well, although I was involved in a in a time series data startup at the time, uh, we were trying to do a search engine for time series data. That that company ended up being sold to Nasdaq, um, and. Uh, I was the guy who was not finance guy inside a finance company, <laughs> and right. uh, and uh, so so what we do in in, in Quinkite is when we find a new technology or or we are interested in hard science regarding a technology development, right? Is we go and build something for it, 
like literally build something. Um, so what we did is we built btclook.com. Doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it was essentially uh, one of the early uh, Bitcoin explorers, uh, blockchain explorers, right? Like kind of like blockchain.info at the time or, or uh, blockexplorer.com. Um, the, the block, uh, the block uh, uh, size was so like the, the whole data for the blockchain was so small that we managed to fit everything in Redis in memory. So we ran the whole blockchain in RAM. And you could transverse the whole thing and these beautiful visualizations and you could sort of like find you know, transactions and follow them in little bubbles. It, it was really, really neat. Uh, and that sort of like helped us understand how Bitcoin actually works. It's like, here are the blocks. Here's like, you know, how UTXOs work. This is, this is the block time. You know, this is what happens when, when uh, the difficulty adjustment happens, right? Like it really gave us like a proper picture of it. And we started thinking, okay, this is really cool. Now, how do we start a business around this? <laughs> we want to do something. <laughs> <laughs> why did why did you think it was even interesting enough to build like an initial product like that? What was it? Because, like you said, people would have thought you were crazy, right? So, what was it about what you knew about Bitcoin at the time? And you said you thought, like, well, this will never work. What was it that allowed you to devote time to actually building something for it, even something as simple as like a, a block explorer? Well, that's where we go back to that quote you you brought from me from way back. Is that you know, once I downloaded the client, put a Bitcoin in it, and sent it, I was like, "Holy shit!" Like <laughs> absolutely, holy shit! Like the money is in the computer, and the money just left the computer. People don't still to today when you read comments mm. right on Twitter or whatever. People still don't understand the earth-shattering, like like uh, a discovery or invention that this is. Like in regards to the money is in the computer. Like for the longest time, money was never in the computer. Money was in a ledger that somebody else controls. Right? Mm. With Bitcoin, you know, sure. Technically speaking, the Bitcoin is not in the computer. It's just a, a um, you're just signing, right, for the UTXO to be proved that it's yours and everybody has a copy of it. But in practice, it the money is literally in the computer because whoever has the private key has the money, right? And you're sending or you're signing, showing that you moved it. But you know, you sent it to somebody and they did receive it, and there is no intermediaries. You have to remember, like in those days, e-gold was failing. Um, Liberty Reserve guys, I think, were just going to prison or about to go to prison. So, like every single attempt at doing money on the internet landed the founders in jail or completely sort of heart attacked. <laughs> yeah. Did you in those days when it was so nascent? <clears throat> Because I remember looking at it, not necessarily that early, but still wondering like, well, if something is so small, right, the economic mass of this thing is so little, like it, it you know, it's, it was far more susceptible to being attacked in those days than, than today, let's say. So like, how vulnerable did you, did you think the system was back then when you first encountered it? I mean, fully vulnerable. <laughs> if you just killed a few key people, it's gone. Right. Right. 
Uh, you know, remember, Satoshi was still around. Mm-hmm. Satoshi was around still for years after that. It was really only when Gavin went to, to, to that uh, presentation at the CIA that like, uh, or NSA, uh, I can't remember now, that, that, uh, that he vanished, right? Um, so, you know, even for many, many years after that, uh, it was still very killable. Uh, I think we crossed that threshold only a few years ago. That, that truly is, because remember, right? Until you have a mainstream risk, right? Something could be killed. So, um, nowadays, if you want to kill Bitcoin, you're going to kill the market cap of a bunch of Bitcoin, a bunch of mainstream publicly listed uh, American companies, right? So it's not the people, governments don't care. They kill people all the time, right? It it, it really is the the capacity of being sort of um, uh, distributed or have leached into mainstream that protects Bitcoin. So I see all this this sort of big companies as moat uh, for Bitcoiners. Yeah. Um, before we move in on and into that, <clears throat> you moved from Brazil to Canada when you were 19, right? Yes. Where, what part of Brazil are you from and what was, what was growing up in Brazil like for you? Uh, I, I was born and raised in Sao Paulo. It's, it's a big city. really big city, um, mm-hmm. about 24 million people. Um, and, uh, you, you know, Brazil is Brazil. <laughs> it's a very complicated place. There is an absolute astronomical amount of wealth there. Um, it's extremely um, dystopian in regards to that. Um, you mean just and in, like inequality, the wealth gap sort of thing? Inequality. It, it, it's, uh, but it, it's in a weird way. It's not like what, what people understand. Uh, like what do you mean? See, see, if you live in North America, you, you know you think of like pictures of Africa. You think of like you know the poor areas of Brazil. Most people don't understand how these things are mixed in in a big city. Um, you know the the dynamics of you know like the, the poor people interacting with with the rich people and and how that plays out and the violence and everything else. But people still sort of like have a normal life. It, it, it's a very weird thing. Um, but anyways, and, and you know, when I was a kid there, we had, you know, hyperinflation. We, we went through a few different currencies that failed. And, and it was fun and interesting nowadays to, to sort of like reflect on that, looking at Bitcoin and looking at what's happening to fiat in general, right? It's like once you see the lady with the, with the repricing machine at the supermarket, and you're trying to get ahead of her to do your groceries, <laughs> right? Because they would reprice almost every day or sometimes intraday. Like the, the little stickers for price would start becoming thick on the products. Like products that don't oh, move. Because they put one over the other, yeah, over the other, over the other. Yeah, one of, yeah and it, you get like actually thick. It, it, it's a, it's a very, and you remember, you remember that? Like oh, you remember totally. experiencing that? Yeah, totally. What like did I, you think I, about it at the time? Did you understand what was going on? Well, I understood that like, you know, if you don't spend your money, it becomes just a, a pile of, of like useless paper. 
But did you understand like this because the government was creating too much of it? Like that's how no, that happened? No, no. Well, yes and no. I was young, right? So I let's say, you know, it would be in an age where I'd be taking my allowance money and going to like going to a, a, a newspaper stand to buy either like some kids magazines or or like uh, you know, candy or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, and you get there and the the next day, the same amount of money doesn't buy the same stuff, right? And then that continued happening as I was getting older. You know, we we knew that it was government printing and stuff. It's not even like they they don't even try to hide it like nowadays, right? It was just um, on your face. It's so and, funny when you're when you're a kid and you experience these things and like not knowing the mechanics of how everything works, your mind just kind of rationalizes in some way. Like I remember. Uh, my mom used to give me a dollar to go to the corner store when we were kids. Right. And you could get a hundred sour candies, right. One cent candies, or you could get maybe a chocolate bar or two, or you get a chocolate bar and a bag of chips, like that kind of stuff. And she would tell us like, Oh, when I was a kid, you'd get a chocolate bar for five cents and our minds would explode. Right. We'd be like, Oh my God, like with this $1, we could get 20 chocolate bars, right? Which of course is, is not the case at all, but we didn't understand the process that, that had unfolded between the time that she was a kid and, and we were kids. Um, and it's obviously it's the same thing. It's just happening on a different timeline, right? You experienced it like in a far more condensed timeline and therefore the experience was different, but you know, it's, uh, it's crazy how long and how, how many people deal with these issues and how they can spin out of control. And, you know, obviously we're in an era where it may be, spinning out of control on a mass, you know, everywhere, basically. You know, I highly recommend people reading, I can't remember the name of the book, but there is a book that was written about the Brazilian real. It's a fascinating story. Uh, they, they essentially had, we had about like four failed currencies. And then the government like sort of came up with this idea, it was extremely successful. They managed to convince everybody based on absolute nothing that this new currency was going to be one to one to the dollar. Like, and that's it. It was just a psychological campaign and they got it done. And it was one to one. Like we went from like, you know, I think a thousand to one or a hundred to one at that time with whatever current currency was to, to one to one to the dollar for years. Real um, exchange rate, not like yeah. the government exchange well, rate. It was, it was, it wasn't far off. The parallel dollar wasn't far off. Right. And, uh, and, uh, I remember I came to Canada and, uh, and then that broke. So, and my savings were still in, in reais. So like I had, you know, first year was like, great one-to-one, you know, like, look, I can just go buy stuff in Canada. And then like a few months in, it's like two-to-one, <laughs> then three-to-one, <laughs> and then like four-to-one. <laughs> and you're like... You know, still sort of semi-denial thinking that, you know, maybe it's just a blip. Maybe, you know, like after this political whatever is happening there, like it it goes back. So you're not going to just fully exchange it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and anyways, it was was, uh, a not fun, interesting thing to watch. Sure. It makes me think of that Guardian article I think came out yesterday where... who I don't know who, who wrote it and I only saw the headline, but it was something to the effect like... You know, we have this secret weapon up our sleeve. You know, governments or central banks have this secret weapon up their sleeve that they need to start using price controls, you know, and it was like they were positioning it as this like, you know, amazing way to combat inflation. And, 
you know, when, when you were in Brazil at that time, I don't, I don't know the history of the Real very well, but like, was that kind of stuff part of daily life as well? Price controls as the currency kind of unwound? Oh yeah. Is that something you experienced? So, you know, there is this, this known, I, I was surprised the Guardian article, I, I read it, didn't mention it, but like every single time in history, anywhere in the world ever, Whenever you have price control, you have shortages, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to be an absolute idiot to buy a product and then be forced to sell for less. Or if you're a producer, to produce the product and then sell for a, a loss, right? So mm-hmm. what happens is they introduce price control through the supply chains. You start having the shortages, right? Because one level down, as soon as the inventory is over, they stop buying. And then eventually the producers stop producing it. And it's often fairly fast, right? So what government normally does is they, they'll pick just a few categories where they'll try to subsidize it so it doesn't look like the price control is fully breaking the system, like bread or milk. And I remember that as a kid, they would have price control, price fixing on stuff like fuel or whatever. And then like, you know, you have massive lines. <laughs> no <to> fuel. No <laughs> product. Like, it's, it's not that complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's really anything to and everything and anything to avoid naming the actual problem, which is you're making too much money. You're printing too much money, right? It's the same thing in the U.S. happening now. I mean, it's deplorable. Uh, who was it? I think it was Elizabeth Warren the other day who was, you know, on some tirade about the meat producers gouging. Uh, customers, right? And look, I, I said this somewhere else recently, but you know, I know the meat industry in the US is highly consolidated and I'm sure there's like cartel-like behavior throughout, but it's certainly not, you know, that's been the case for decades, right? And and that's not the reason why there's like a 50 to 100% increase in meat prices over the last year to 18 months, right? It's not like they became especially greedy all of a sudden. But it's it's that type of rhetoric that is used to mischaracterize a problem and divide people in order to avoid naming the actual problem, which is the irresponsible uh, creation of money supply, expansion of the money supply. But, you know, I came to the realization that why, why, why is that they cannot name it, right? It's because that's what the people want. The majority of the people want free shit. Like yeah. they want free services, right? And, and, and truly is fascinating how that plays out because you know, you see this on both right and left, right? Like you get the money printer on the left for left issues and you get the money printer on the right for right issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody's addicted to the money printer. Everybody yeah. wants all the services and nobody wants to sort of pay for them, right? So, you know, this is why it doesn't change and that's why politicians get away with it because this is what the people want. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an unholy godlike power. I mean, nobody, how could you possibly resist that thing? I mean, creating money means you get to direct the will of everybody who accepts and uses or is forced to accept that money. And that means you can control pretty much everything. And how could you not be corrupted by that type of power? It would take, you know, very few people are able, are, are able to resist that type of corruption. And, you know, this is why we're here. Nobody. <laughs> probably nobody yeah, maybe, would be, maybe. you know, <laughs> even if they put us on the driver's seat there and we go like, okay, um, so I have all these issues. I am on a four year cycle of elections. Everybody that voted for me want this. I'm going to do it. Right. This is what Bitcoin fixes. It removes 
the the admin keys, right? Like you you have no choice but to respect the unit of account. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So why did you and the family move to Canada when you were 19? I came by did myself. You, you came by yourself. Yeah, no, I, I came to to take a course, a few courses that I was interested in. Uh and then sort of like I fell in love with the place. And uh and uh, I decided to to sort of stay to immigrate. Oh. And so you came at 19, started CoinKite pre-Bitcoin, made the block explorer, and then what? So then how did you guys decide what to do next? So so then um we were like, okay, great. So Bitcoin is payments. Right? <laughs> this is pre, you know, way before we all talking about store of value, right? I think mm-hmm. the first person who talks about store of value is Trace Beer in about like 2012. Who? 2013. Trace. Trace. Uh-huh. And so, but before that, like, I mean, pretty much everybody's in the payment train, right? Still. Because remember, right? The, the internet has this problem. It has no payments. Yeah. So, so we go, okay, great. Uh, we, we, let's, how do people want to pay for stuff? Well, they want to use the card. So we make the, the CoinKite debit card, right? Uh, we can't find PCI certified payment terminals like those. Remember the payment terminals you saw in stores or for cards? We, we couldn't find one or, or PCI would not certify it. So we went and we made. What's PCI like the certification uh, it, body for that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, it's it's the people who essentially run the EMV, the the all the the payment cards. Yeah, it's a security standard, but it's more than that. Anyways, point is, you need the certifications in order to to operate with Visa and Mastercard as well. If you want on their machines, and and it gets very complicated fast, and it gets very dark fast, <laughs> right? Like it's like there's no information. It's a nightmare if you're a small company trying to do this. So we just go around them and, and we make our own debit machines with uh, uh, QR scanners uh, and they're all uh, uh, cell phone based. Um, and we find a cell phone provider from Israel that's willing to make the, to give us the SIM cards as well. So we start shipping these things to about like 120 countries so that um, store owners can both receive Bitcoin payments uh, through the screen and QR codes or the debit card so people that don't have a, a phone wallet could pay uh, uh, for the stuff. Or they can use these machines as a Western Union device for them to do exchanging in person. So they do the cash float, the machine handles all the Bitcoin and prints a paper wallet for them. Kind of like what a Stacko became after. Uh, so we were running this in, in, you know, in a, in a, in a small mid scale, right? And, uh, the problem was, you know, there were not, no good Bitcoin wallets <laughs> at the time. So we, we designed this whole backend system, the first Bitcoin HSMs and, and, you know, and, and the, the web wallet that was kind of like a online banking for Bitcoin. Um, and and the debit card stuff was way too early, right? Like, I mean, there were a few thousand people using the world, and you know, it's just it wasn't quite there. So so we started focusing more on the web wallet and, and the backend service. So we launched an API. We had multi-sig, very very early days, and uh, you know, some exchanges are starting to use our system as their backend. Um, 
in those days, I mean, you know, the money you could charge them was not that high yet. So, it, you know, it was sort of like a break-even kind of business. Um, and I personally didn't want to be uh, a centralized service at the time. So uh, it, we had an absurd amount of deposits in the system. It was something like $4 billion worth of Bitcoin, like way back then. When? Like 13, 14? <laughs> yeah, about that time. And that's kind of, that must have been it, like, it was crazy amount of money. 30% of the, of the Bitcoin? No, it, like was, it was less than that, I think, already. Um, but it, it, was, it was not small. Right. And, uh, and then we're like, okay, we don't want to do this. <laughs> we don't want to <laughs> hold all this money for people. I mean, mind you, right? Like, you know, a good chunk of that was in multi-sig. It was just starting out and all that stuff. So, so we sort of like, okay, you know what? This is not what I want to do in my life. So we told everybody to, to take their money out. We send a lot of the customers to Big Go. And we closed on the back end. What was the pressure like about custodying so much Bitcoin? Like, did that wear on you in any way? Yeah, it, it, it did in regards to like, you know, I, I don't want the responsibility. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and, you know, we would be getting like letters from every soup letter agency. We would be getting like, you know, all kinds of stuff. Like, I mean, you know, it's half of the time just reviewing what do you send to lawyers? What do you do with that? It's just, it's just not what I want to do in my life, right? It, it's, it's like Bitcoin is supposed to be this awesome decentralized thing. And here I am like, you know, holding the bags for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so so we, we felt like it was much better to sort of like, okay, let's focus on the hardware. This is what we love to do, right? We, we want to make the stuff that people use, but we send it to them and they do it themselves. Right. Um, and uh, that's that's when we launched Open Dime, and then we launched Cold Card. Right before we get into that, and I, I probably should have dug back, dug into this before we left the Brazil part of the story. But do you think that your experiences there, growing up with the currency and stuff like that, influenced the reaction you had when you first saw Bitcoin? You know, because a lot of people swim in the soup of their currency, right? like, you know, the fish in the water sort of parable. But if there's no issues with it, it's not something they ever consider, right? Like if you grew up in the States or Canada, you know, beyond the story I told you about, my, you know, chocolate bars, nobody ever thinks about that kind of stuff. But when it's that disruptive to your daily life, you see prices changing and trying to spend it before it loses value. Like it obviously becomes something more top of mind awareness. So like, do you think that influenced how you gravitated towards Bitcoin once it came across your table? Um, so it, it, it did, but not in the way you think. So in those days, um, because the, the, the narrative of Bitcoin was not store of value, right? It, it was insanely volatile. I, like, and we mm. didn't know if it was going to still stick around in those days, right? So, so the, the narrative of payments made a lot more sense. You have this uncensorable way of giving money to somebody on the internet, right? But maybe storing more than just some some capital for you to operate like might not be a good idea right mm -hmm. because the system could literally fail um and and we were still not even talking about how bitcoin is a completely separated asset class yet right like this, 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 it was unclear 
There was mm. no text for you to go read that sort of like reflected over that yet, right? <laughs> it was very like out there. Um, but I remember uh, losing my savings to bail-ins and I remember the doleros. So in Brazil, um, if you wanted to to not have to pay the the the, the state mandated exchange rate for the US dollars, you'd go to the guy, the corner guy, you give USD, you give you give reais cash, and the guy would give you USD cash, right? And that was a much better rate. Mm. So what when I saw the Bitcoin, the money's in the computer kind of realization, um, to me it was very clear that like you have this thing now that has no capital controls. There's no bullshit. The money's yours, right? Uh so even though it wasn't the inflation story yet in my head, it was definitely the capital control story in my head. Mm. It, it, you know, merging both became very obvious, like, you know, a little bit later, um, probably like 2012 kind of thing when it was sort of like we're starting to talk about, you know, like things that like, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe this thing doesn't die and you can store value in it, right? But right. But the volatility was absolutely insane. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it was far more about like its immediate utility back then than its long-term viability or or, or long-term utility for savings. Right. It's a similar thing when I was living in China, uh, you know, from 2009 to 2018. I remember, you know, because China has capital controls, right? Even if you're a foreigner, I think the max year send out is like 50k or something like that. And if you're making good money in China, then you have to keep a lot of your money in there. And if you, even if you do like the whole show the tax receipts and claim everything, I, th I think there's still limitations. And for Chinese citizens, it's even worse. Now, rich people have always found ways around it, of course. But, um, but here was this thing that you could just, you could easily buy Bitcoin in China back then, you know, in 2014, something like that. Um, and you could just send it out however you wanted, no fee, no hassle, immediate. And, uh, I don't know how many people took advantage of it at the time, but you know, Bitcoin was obviously pretty popular in China back then. Oh, I mean, Bitcoin was huge in China, huge. It became huge so fast. People yeah. immediately understood it there because <clears throat> the difference between China and say South America is that like there is a lot more money in the hands of a sort of like an upper middle class in China, where in mm. Brazil is a little bit more lopsided, right? It's like ultra rich yeah. and, and 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 so so like you have these people who are extremely sophisticated with like computers, and you know this Bitcoin thing appears, so they're like they're totally able. And there's a lot of gamblers in China. Oh, yeah. like people love gambling there. <laughs> so you know some of the first things that happened in Bitcoin was gambling. Yeah, uh, I I remember the, um, the uh, when I was living in China, I heard the statistic one time that the average mainland Chinese uh, gambler in Macau. Spent gambles ten times the average uh, Vegas gambler, like you know, American Vegas gambler or something like that. And I and I remember the Sands was built, I think, in like the early 2010s there, and a multi-billion-dollar project. And I think it had recouped its entire investment in the first year, or something, something outrageous like that. Um, but back then, you know, how did you educate yourself in such an early day? Because you know. There wasn't much educational content. I basically you had to kind of follow the discussions that were happening between like actual contributors and developers in Bitcoin to 
really, you know, how, how did you figure out how this really worked and how did you satisfy that need for education? You know, if you wanted to do a business, you know, do it, be an entrepreneur in the space. So there was like, you know, there were a lot of the, 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 the pre Bitcoin texts, right? So like way die and all that stuff. There was some of the Adam back things to read. Um, and, uh, we started meetups. So, you know, we were already running like Bitcoin meetups here in like probably 2011, 2012. Um, and we would all meet and, you know, Peter Todd was a local. Um, and uh, there were a lot of interesting people who were sort of participating or participated in related things here. Uh, and, uh, you know, sit, talk, go to conferences. Like there were already some happening. Um, I, I think like the first sort of main one that was like a, a big deal was the 2013 one in San Jose. Mm -hmm. um, that was very interesting because we started having non-internet people show up. Like there were people already who were like, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, family office managers already showing up and things like that. It, it was really interesting. Uh, mm. In this regard, and um, yeah, it, it was just uh, you had to do a lot more thinking in, in regards to these things, and, and you were a lot, and you were wrong a lot more often too. Yeah. Well, I mean, things were less set in stone back then too, right? There was still a lot of conversation about how things should go. Right. Like how, how has your, your thinking evolved around Bitcoin as you've observed these conversations and these back and forth? And even while Satoshi was still around and all of the yeah, conversation about what this thing should actually be and how to make it the thing that you think it should be. Like, how, what was it like to observe and maybe even contribute to those conversations? So we were super quiet. Uh, we didn't have much social media profile because we were sort of bag holders, right? For people. So, and we didn't understand fully what the security consequences of that could be. Uh, in those days, by the way, too, we, we weren't sure if Bitcoin was going to just be illegalized like everything else before and we were all going to jail, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it was things were not clear. Um, and I, I think, I think what happened was, uh, at least for me, uh, I started to realize early that like this thing is going to be different things for different people, but none of them have control over it. And that's kind of the whole point. So you'd have this sort of like, you know, people trying to push it that way. People try to push it that way. You had like people who like Gavin, who decided to, to be like, to say that he's going to be the, the, the benevolent dictator of Bitcoin. And it's kind of like, you know, yeah, sure. Whatever. Right. I mean, <laughs> you're going to get pushed out. And he did. You know, and then it had like people like Mike Hearn, you know, like there were a few interesting characters through the time. And, and what was interesting is like through these characters that had like higher profile, you could see how the immune system works very early. Right. I mean, even Satoshi was not like, it, it, it's not like people just simply took his word like the gospel. Right. I mean, it's just that on the beginning, it's like, you know, it's this guy's project, right? I mean, that's how normally open source work. Like, you know, you try to respect the maintainer. Um, but then very, very fast, it wasn't like that anymore, right? That there was there was some some friction between Satoshi and the rest of the people contributing. And 
it was very interesting to see that just growing, right? As, as like the system where there is the system and anybody who tries to be an admin of the system gets pushed out. Um, it, it's sort of like that just progressed and exacerbated as time came. So that gave me a lot of confidence that the system was a little bit more resilient. And I, I think, and it's so interesting, just, just as a side comment, that like block wars go back all the way then, right? I mean, the block size debates and things. I mean, like Gavin wanted to increase the block size way back then. Um, so so a, a lot of the things we see now sort of like kind of resolved, um, they, they were just interesting... Uh, it was an interesting picture of a system settling in and sort of like sorting its its dynamics out. Yeah, yeah, and so this may be a somewhat of a challenging question because our understanding of Bitcoin seems to evolve over time. But at that period, like when you're when you're confronting this thing, first of all, knowing what it even is is somewhat of a challenge, and maybe that's an ongoing thing for all of us forever. But like, what did you think it it should be? You know, you're having this debate, you know, people, as you say, like part of the block size debate is like, well, it should be this or it should be that, or should we change it at all? Is that the thing that we want to preserve the non-changingness of it? You know, so like this thing emerges and it's super cool and, and you ascribe a certain amount of possibility and potential to it because it can be censorship resistant money and non-state money, non-inflationary money, whatever. But like in those early days, what were you thinking or how even were you constructing your perspective or opinion on what this should be and how to not mess it up, basically? I, I always felt that it, it should be like sort of like an immutable thing. It, it, you know, it's sort of like it, it evolves with everybody, right? Because it's still software that can be changed, mm. but it should be changed the least. <laughs> Minimum changes, right? Because... The goal here is something that is resilient. And, and if you have a system that can be changed, it means it can also be co-opted, right? Yeah. Uh, the more flexible something is, the more it could be sort of taken to a side or the other and sort of being ping-ponged out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was very drawn to the idea of something that is extremely hard to change, even to the detriment to the, of its features, right? So it's like Bitcoin is trying to do this money thing, Right, leave it alone. Right, and and I and I think that was true. Also, I was always sort of like on the side of the small blocks, uh, even way back then. Because you know, if you understand hardware, if you understand computers, you know that, it, it, you know, as much as you know the the grasshopper sort of like young developers, they love adding features and things. Uh, you see this a lot of in web development, right? Because, you know, computers have near infinite memory these days, right? But that's why all the websites are shit, right? It's because like, you go in and, and you want to see one image, but there is like 20 megabytes of code being loaded to just show one image. It's like, no, just show me the one image, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I think Bitcoin had this sort of more FreeBSD mentality, more Unix mentality, where it's like you keep things simple, and 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 you gain security, you gain a lot of things from that, right? Um, and uh, I I loved it that uh, I loved how simple it was and and how non flexible it was and and I I saw the drama 
and the friction between devs not getting their changes adopted as a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you want your thing. Well, you either get everybody to want your thing or it's unlikely to get merged. And if anything, it should take forever to get merged. And I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. Did the, did the block size war period concern you about the viability of Bitcoin? No, like it was, I, I, and I remember uh, when, when that started to bubble up a bit, a bit like more intensely, um, when, when Ver really decided to sort of like start trying to create divergency on, on the consensus. Um, you know, way back with XT, when Gavin tried to do that, uh, and, uh, and I think there was also, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Hearn. Mike Hearn tried to do the, I think it was ABC or extent. I can't remember who did what anymore. But uh, those, those were not very concerning because it was obvious that those were forks. They were not trying to use the name. They, they added sort of nomenclature to Bitcoin and sort of like they were trying to go their own way, right? But when Ver started to try to co-op the brand, right? Actual Bitcoin, what is real Bitcoin? Um, it was already sort of obvious to me that it, you know, it was kind of like it was going to be painful. It might take a massive hit on the price, but it wasn't going to succeed because, it, 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 you know, when you on the ground talk to people anecdotally, because this is still rough consensus, right? You, you're never going to be able to find a spreadsheet that says who says what, right? And people might change their minds too. Uh, but you know, when you start talking to people who you intellectually respect, uh, even if you don't necessarily agree with them, like on, on Bitcoin consensus things, I think you could say that the, the great majority of people understood the consequences of changing the block size, right? Even if they might not agree on the exact number or, or how to go about it, and they understood there was a concern around uh, transaction mailability or there was a concern around uh, you know, how many transactions per second you could do, all that crap. Most people understood that you couldn't just like go and increase the block size, right? Like by a lot. So to me, at least was like, okay, great. Like I know that even if we inch in into a, a slight block increase, which was SegWit, SegWit nearly doubled the block size, uh, which is unfortunate. I wish it was smaller. Uh, it, it was obvious that the compromise was much closer to my side of the thinking than with that, right? So it wasn't very concerning anymore. So much so like I got a lot of DMs from people like saying, you know, like, do, do I sell my Bitcoin and wait this out? You know, I'm terrified, right? Like, especially people who were just coming in at the time. Absolutely yeah. terrified. And I'm like, no, just, you know, just stick around. You might be able to even <laughs> collect that as like a nice little airdrop, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's sort of like how that played out for, for me personally. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the compromises made, you know, at the end of the block size war, let's say, effective increase, you know, increase in block size. What, what do you make of the compromises that were made and how, if at all, that changed anything fundamental about Bitcoin or its trajectory or its long-term viability, like what was your impression about the compromises that were made? So I personally believe that through 
Bitcoin's sort of like path of adoption, right? Um, we're going to see many, as people started to understand that Bitcoin was a store of value first, right? So a few years ago, that majority sort of settled that in and were sort of like quieted out, right? Um, you will see a, a progressive decrease in transaction volume. And we have seen that the blocks are empty or near empty, right? You can still do one sat by transactions. And you don't need the big block. The big block thing was when people were trying to make pay coffee, buy coffee with Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin is a much better way for you to settle uh, economically relevant amounts of, of, of value, right? So uh, I've always believed that humans cannot escape uh, semi-trusted systems, right? That's just how we operate, right? I know you, we trust each other, right? You know, I tell you, the check is in the mail, right? This, this, is, this is basic human thing, right? We're, we're never going to escape that. Um, so instead of doing a Bitcoin transaction uh, with somebody that is a trusted party and we may spend a lot of money on that transaction, right? We, we, we go around it in some other way where we have a trust model already between ourselves. So I always thought that, hey, you know, you're going to see these big custodial wallets and custodial exchanges doing uh, IOUs between each other, right? And clearing between each other. So they don't actually need block space until they decide to fully settle out. Right or 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 clear uh, balances the same way banks work, mm-hmm. um, and so in my mind the the coffee thing was not that interesting. So much so the way back in the day we added Litecoin as well to the system because we thought, hey, it, you know, Bitcoin is the store of value, right? Is the gold, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Litecoin, which has like fast blocks, and you could do that. And you know, it, it, and it was used for the time. Um, I don't see a place anymore for the shit coins. Um, because we can resolve those with other sort of technology around Bitcoin, right? We still leverage the Bitcoin base layer, which is like truly fucking secure, right? And then we do all the other stuff. So we don't need double mining, right? For, for paying for coffee. But you shouldn't like use your Bitcoin to pay for coffee anyways, because you're going to pay cap gains on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you use either like, you know, either Lightning or eventually some stable coin. Stable coins are fantastic, uh, especially in business. Um, I just wish they were not in Ethereum and, and you know, all these stupid systems that don't really work. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why I like the liquid idea of like bringing Tether into liquid. It didn't happen so far. But my hope is that uh, probably through DLCs, District log contracts that uh, bits. I can't remember which company is doing. Sure bits. Sure bits. You will be able to do those things on Bitcoin, on Lightning, uh, or or some other type of payment channels, uh, and it will be a lot more efficient and and free or near free. Because remember, security of those layer two networks are getting subsidized by the immense value on layer one Bitcoin, right? Mm. And other networks are not going to be able to compete to this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to, you know, put a bow on this one, it's, as you said before, like it's what we're dealing with here is software and software can be changed, right? And if we're, we're positioning this network as an immutable ledger or network, 
then it's I think it stands to reason that change is uh, to be done very carefully, if at all, right? And and I guess that's why the early days were so interesting because there was things were a lot less set in stone. And this is the whole you know kind of thesis of ossification now. Like you know the proponents of ossification are like, look. The thing that's special about this is not that you've sorted out how much economic activity can be handled by this amount of block space versus this and whether an, a little bit of inflation is good in 2140 because of the fees, fees might not be sufficient. What's really special about this thing is that we may have on our hands something that cannot be changed and it's best to let order coalesce around that because the value of having something that's immutable is far greater than the value of our ability to suss out what's most economically advantageous for example you, you know you want a great example you know ip ip itcp so tcp ip um you know, IPv4, nobody asked for changes, right? And IPv6, it's not working and it has not found enough sort of like a lot of adoption either because it's full of problems. So, you know, once you have a protocol, right? This is, it's, it's more than open source software. Bitcoin is not just open source software, right? Bitcoin is open source protocol. And protocol means there's multiple parties using the same spec, right? And when you have the same spec, you don't change the spec. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't talk to each other anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you said a few minutes ago that you would have wanted the block size increase to be less. Would, would you have preferred, preferred there not to be one at all? Oh, yes. In this I, thinking yes. in this way? Yeah, I, if anything, I'd say I'd prefer the block size to have been made smaller. Because when you have... But then aren't we in territory of, of the problem being change once but again? that's the thing. I'm human, right? I have my set of preferences. <laughs> no, seriously, th right. this is the thing, right? Like, I have my set of preferences, which other people won't like, right? And, and But I still do, even though I like the idea of not changing, I still like the idea of having my way, right? Right, right. Um, and and if we had my way, we could be broadcasting blocks on radio worldwide for free or near free. And mm -hmm. like literally, you could have like a little AM radio on your desk, shortwave radio, like receiving full blocks at the speed of light. Just like you can get the you know the news. Like it, 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 it's uh it's it, you know. How how small would they have to be to do that? Um, not not that much smaller. Uh, I think like around three hundred kilobytes per block, so a third of the original block size uh, would do the the trick. You, you can still kind of do it now because there's a ten minute interval, but but it's not the same. Like you, you know, ideally you wanna you wanna uh, play it and you wanna probably double triple play it. Like there's a few things going on, right? Uh, mm -hmm. On how you design that protocol for the radio, but. Uh, you'd have been like oh, amazing. Like no need for satellites, no need for none of this stuff. You just like full on AM radio broadcast, just like those crazy people from the desert. Talk about resilient. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so is it fair to say you're kind of of the opinion like maybe we got away with one? Let's not touch yes. it on that level again. Hundred percent. So do you think it. that it's at all possible that maybe we didn't get away with one and and seeds were sown? That may ultimately be detrimental. I think I think people are so PTSD from 
the the block size wars that I I think we would need a generation in order to forget the PTSD for people to try it again. What do you think of uh, of Lightning? You referenced it briefly a few minutes ago. I I love Lightning. I just don't think it's going to be used the way that most people think it's going to be used. Go on. It, it, it's uh, I think it's a bit of a controversial opinion, but um, Lightning. So payment channels, right, is a concept. There is about fifty proposals. It's just that they all sort of semi got consolidated into what we know as Lightning Network, right, and. I think Lightning, the best experience for Lightning is sort of custodial experience for Lightning, right? And it's interesting because Lightning aligns with that very well because it's also non, it's economically irrelevant amounts to most people too. So marrying the best experience with the best risk, right? It's, it's, it's a very powerful thing. Um, and I think what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, Lightning being how uh, payment processors and retail end up sort of consolidating or, or interacting between each other. So I'll give you an example. So let's say Coinbase is the Bitcoin solution provider for McDonald's, right? <clears throat> In El Salvador, right? I don't know if it's them, but let's say it is, right? I think it's now, open node, but yeah. Sure. Um, it, you know, if open if open node is successful enough, Coinbase will just buy them, right? So, right, right, uh, or somebody else. But just keep that in mind. So, uh, you go to McDonald's to pay, right? You don't care about Bitcoin theoretically, right? You just you're gonna probably have some stable coins, especially if you are in the developing world, right? Because they cannot absorb volatility; uh, they don't have spare cash. So, you go to pay there. Um, if you're paying with your Coinbase app into a Coinbase-related company, right? Like there is no reason to use Lightning or to use anything, right? You just do a credit swap, right? Which is free. Um, now, if you are a, a a Kraken user, right, on their Kraken app wallet, they don't have one, but let's say they had, right? So, like a big entity, that's the whole point, right? Um, and you go pay at McDonald's, then the way these two settle between each other is via Lightning, likely using private channels. Because then they control, they have, go back to that trust model I was saying, right? Like humans cannot escape trust. And, and that's how they do it. Now, when they want to settle that, that happens on the base layer. Maybe that's how they rebalance channels. Maybe they do a big transaction for big disparity, big uh, unbalanced of capital, whatever it is. So I think because people use Lightning uh, with economically relevant amounts, and because Lightning requires stateful uh, uh, use, right? So you have to be connected to the internet. So you are at risk, essentially. Uh, for your keys. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of that. And, and I don't see a problem with that. I, I, I think it's great to have like uh, uh, things with trust. And even better is that because Lightning is an open protocol, right? Like, you know, open node or, or like Coinbase doesn't need to like Kraken, right? Or, or vice versa, right? They, they will still operate in that in that uh, in that universe, 
uh, without having to use base layer, which would be expensive in that future, right? Uh, and you're going to see more. Like uh, this is just one payment channel solution. I, I think there will be more sort of different set of trade-offs uh, uh, appear in the market as well. Um, so that's sort of like my take on that. What other what other solutions do you think might compete for that? You know, because I, I I agree. I think you know. Uh, a lot of this is going to be abstracted away so people don't have to manage so much and there'll be wallets will be lightning service providers or, uh, and you know, you just, you, you, as you say, you let the market kind of, uh, compete for trust. I mean, that's, that's kind of like the free banking model, right? Yeah. Like that's how it was kept in check is that like the, the, in order to compete, you had to be a trustworthy provider. Now, Sometimes those systems break down and sometimes they're not resilient and all sorts of things can happen. But, you know, I agree it's inevitable that there's going to be an element of, of that kind of trust, in particular for normie users and probably for all of us eventually. But do you, what other uh, solutions do you think will com compete for that? Uh, so I, I think stuff? once we see stable coins built on DLCs and Lightning, right, I, 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 think, I think that's what people are going to use, right, for their... Because, you know, let's put it this way, your operational cash, right? Uh, your daily driver wallet, right? Um, you don't want that to accrue capital gains, right? So you don't want that to have volatility, even if it's just for tax purposes, right? So, um, so I think we're going to end up having is, you know, this sort of like Bitcoin rails for US denominated, USD denominated transactions. Right. If if anything, just pragmatism around taxes and accounting. Like, I don't think people appreciate the absolute nightmare that it is accounting for a business uh, and and Bitcoin. Um, you know, for the individual, especially, you know, the the average bleep sort of like doing like small transactions or sort of like not or not paying taxes or something. Right. Yeah, you can't do that not as a business. Reporting that shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to say that, but like, <laughs> you know, but when you're a business, I mean, like, you know, you have like, you know, accounting requirements and rules, right? And and you have to sort of like, you can't just gloss over them because the cost of of not complying is much bigger, and and mm -hmm. you have a physical presence too. It's not like you can just say fuck it and move on, right? Uh, you'd have to move your whole business to a place where that's possible. Um. So, so yeah, so I think that this, the idea of getting out of the traditional banking system is amazing, right? I wish I didn't have to bank with a big Canadian it's so bank. so horrible. It's it, so horrible. It, it's pulling teeth. I mean, yeah. I can't even add a note to a, Bitcoin, to a bank transaction. Like, think, mm. think of the insanity of this. It's right? ancient. It's, yeah. And, and here's the best part. So I sent an email of money transfer, right? That that got stuck, and for for like a couple grand, and and the the bank screwed it up. And if I don't cancel the transaction within forty five minutes, they want to charge me five dollars for a transaction that never went out for their own fault, right? And, yeah. and there is no human to talk to. Like it, it's just so horrific, and and they have your money in their hands, right? So now if I can bank myself on stable coin based on Lightning, based on Bitcoin, right? That's like a monumental change. So like now I'm using Bitcoin as an as a actual store of value and I have operational 
based on today's you know unit of account. I mean, eventually Bitcoin becomes the unit of account, but that's going to take some time. And I still have to operate a business today. Mm. So I want to be able to bank myself the same way I the, the same way I bank myself with Bitcoin. Yeah, I I totally understand and appreciate that. What do you think? Speaking of you know spending Bitcoin, I've been down to El Salvador twice this year, and um, as you know, legal tender starting to percolate around. People are using it more as a currency. <clears throat> still very. Uh, still not the primary choice, right? USD still dominates down there, but it's happening, right? What do you make of that announcement? What's happening there? You know, and you've been, you know, as we've been discussing, you've been in the space for so long and you get to see these like big seminal moments where like unimaginable things or maybe not unimaginable, but things that you had expected maybe further off in the future to happen and be pulled forward. What do you make of what's happened down there? El Salvador is fascinating, right? Because they were a very unique situation, right? They this this is a a Central American country that is absolutely screwed by the MF. They are economically irrelevant to the world, right? They're very tiny. Uh, the, the the population is is fairly like poor. Um, so so they just get the you know the short end of the stick, right? In general, yeah. But they have one more thing. They are USD based. So they cannot debase their currency. They don't have a money printer. And that's a very unique situation. There's very few countries left in the world that are fully USD-based, right? They, they, they would have a peg, but they, at least they have a peg. So they could sort of debase their currency depending on what they're trying to do. Or they'll find mm -hmm. some other vehicle. But anyways, El Salvador couldn't. So, you know, Bitcoin becomes the obvious answer by default. It's like, okay, great. So we just add this other official currency, right? Like we don't have to see mess. what happens. <laughs> you know, exactly. Right. Like it's not like you're messing with your local currency and it's not like you have any control over your local currency because it's American. Right. So, so it's a very unique, interesting opportunity that they found themselves in. And I, I, I don't know what the tax treatment is with, uh, with, with, Bitcoin is a currency there. Like, so if you appreciate, if you have to pay taxes when you spend it again, I don't believe it does. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a currency. Um, so it gets interesting, but you know, nobody can escape Gresham's law. Period. Like, it's almost like gravity, right? So, you know, bad money drives out good money. So people will spend their shitcoin first before they ever touch their good coin. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think people are just going to like increasingly use the leftover USD that they have even mm -hmm. further instead of ever touching their BTC. Sort of like tying it back to my, my comment about like block space always being smaller and smaller, like less need and less need because people don't want to spend their BTC. Yeah, I that's super interesting. Super interesting. And I'll tell you my experience. And I'm obviously a crazy person, right? I'm a crazy Bitcoiner. So I think about these things differently than most people. But so on the one hand, I agree, right? Like, why would I want to hold uh, the USD shitcoin any longer than I need to, right? It's, it's devaluing by the day. But there's another aspect that I've, and, I, and I've always been like a staunch, don't spend your Bitcoin sort of person, right? Like on rare things, <laughs> I bought... I bought my first hardware wallet with Bitcoin and that cost me 
in hindsight, a lot of money, right? We all have those stories where we spent a certain amount of Bitcoin back in the day and now it's worth like a ton of money. Um, and th- you know, those are tough lessons and they kind of imprint upon you like, okay, just hold on to it and don't, don't spend it. But, um, when I was down there in November, uh, because it was so ubiquitously accepted and because it's such a better experience than like, you know, pulling out a dollar and 50 cents and getting change and all that jazz, you just scan a QR code and bing, you're done in two seconds. It, um, that I, w- I was like compelled or incentivized to do it. And so I spent a bunch of Bitcoin when I was down there everywhere, lunches, beers, dinners, whatever, um, donating to like people that were doing cool stuff. And, uh, I got to say, man, the act of paying someone with Bitcoin for a value that you either want to give or you are repaying for a service or product provided, there's something like almost, this is why I say I'm a crazy person, because there's something almost spiritual about it. Like It's like you're honoring them more by paying them in this currency than in a currency you don't want or you don't really value that much, i.e. like a, a fiat. I totally or another agree. Sh- a shit coin or whatever. So like, I don't know if that's going to influence Gresham's law ultimately. Maybe not. Maybe people are just going to wait till they're totally, you know, have no uh, shit coins left, you know, fiat or otherwise. And they'll, then they'll start spending Bitcoin because that's all they have. But I, it, I thought it was interesting how I felt about paying people in Bitcoin. It was m- much better experience than I had previously felt about it. I had my streak of doing that in in probably around 2014 when we had the payment terminals, right? I I, I purposely only frequent the, the the restaurants and the places that had our payment terminals, right? And I go there and I go spend my my Bitcoin, right? Uh, and, and I think this is sort of like a, a, a time thing as well. It's like as you as you sort of like. Uh, spend more time and and also depends on the size of transactions as well, right? But I don't know, like at least to me, like for, for me, it was like a, a phase of that. And then I sort of like, like I'm not saying for you as a phase, but like it, it's like, it's sort of like, okay, you know, and, 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 exactly, exactly. I mean, I bought alpaca <laughs> socks for God's sake. And it was very expensive <laughs> socks. Um, and, and uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, and it, I, I, humans are still humans, so I think we're gonna have shit coins forever, right? I, you know, somehow people are always gonna find a way that they think that they can cheat physics, and they're gonna go and they're gonna create a shit coin even in a, much later on in this this hyperbeaconization path, right? And and whoever has access to that shit coin at a lower capital cost than the BTC, they will spend that, right? Mm-hmm. So if that is your government printing, if there is like some money that are given to, like wh- whatever it is, right? So I sort of like adopted this mentality of, of like not trying to fight with the market. So, you know, for, for many years, many, many years, all of our products and services were denominated in Bitcoin. So we had to change the price all the time. Right. And then eventually we're like, okay, great. You know what? We need to have credit cards as well because a lot of people, including me, like I don't want to spend my BTC, right? So we added credit cards to our store uh, and our services. And then and then we started seeing like, it's kind of fascinating to watch. Like Bitcoin is going in this direction, credit card versus Bitcoin. 
uh, uh, ratio goes this way. And, and it's not as obvious as, like, as it looks, but like, you can really see the cycles versus the ratios, um, which is kind of cool. So we decided to just... You mean, like, you mean the, 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 like the ratio of who's buying with Bitcoin versus yes. fiat, credit, yes. whatever? Uh, and to increase that ratio, we also offer 5% off if you pay a Bitcoin, right? Right. Uh, where, is it, where is it at right now? Uh, I, think, I think right now it's about 60-40 BTC. Uh, 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 On... On CoinKai website? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really? Like, yeah. Oh, oh, oh wow. It's kind of fascinating. Is when you have a year like this year, where Bitcoin goes all the way and then down all the way, it averages out at about fifty percent. Right. Uh, and because we don't sell BTC, like we have to sort of find ways uh, of of doing most of the uh, most of the operations with the fiat float only. Right, right, right. Uh, we, which gets very interesting, but um, it, it's Dude, you uh, must you must love having that BTC stream in. I didn't know it was such a yeah. I almost didn't it, think you know based on this conversation we're having. I almost didn't think it would be such a high percentage, but that's awesome. It, it, it is because we are also in a unique position, right? Like our customers really care about privacy because they're receiving a, a device that that's yeah. for their security. Uh, and we ship this worldwide. So some countries, they can't even accept, uh, accept their credit cards. Um, and because of chargebacks, we cannot ship untracked to people who bought with credit cards, right? Because they do a chargeback and I cannot prove they received the package. Mm. So, uh, so, so there, the, the, the friction on, uh, the friction on credit card payments, uh, for about half of the people, uh, is enough for to make them see the value on the product to part away with their BTC, which mm. makes me like super thankful that like people see the value in our products to part away with their BTC. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Um, what do you know? One of the things that I'm super interested in and explore a lot is <clears throat> how over time the ethos, or because of the what Bitcoin represents, there seems to be an ethos that kind of permeates up through the people that engage with it most, you know, the people that stay with it, for example, and really start to see what it is and the implications of it on economics and society and culture and even themselves as individuals. What's been the, because you've kind of been observing and involved in this space for so long, what's been the process of seeing how the ethos has been emerging, but also been getting more clear or refined over time in terms of like what this thing means to people and how it, the effect that it has on people. Do you so, know what I mean? Like yeah, it's no, cultural I totally impact, it. I guess. Yeah. It's like, it, to me, Bitcoin taught me economics. <laughs> like, I mean, it right. was not a guy who knew that completely ignorant about economics, right? Absolutely, completely ignorant. Um, and, and, and sort of like I, I learned like through, through, through seeing a store of value being built, right? Like, like the Austrian economics understanding grew as my bags grew together <laughs> as one, right? Uh, and, and, and seriously, and, and this is why to me, the Gresham's law is like physics, right? Um, so in that, in that learning, I could see the people who were not willing to, to understand the laws of physics in money, right? Uh, they they were 
like their time preference sort of threw them into the shiny features and sort of ended up shitcoining, right? You could see the divergence um, as like people came and went. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of like OGs who like came and went because, you know, they sort of like, you know, sold most of their stash and retired fully with like a ungodly amount of cash, right? And, and I don't think they appreciated or still do that Bitcoin is sort of like where it ends, right? In those days, I mean, like, you know, the idea that like Bitcoin is the last trade was unclear. Everybody had their number. Right. Right. Or their number of disposition of a scale or their number of percentage disposition, but everybody had a number, right? Um, and and I saw that through friends and whatever, right? Like that sort of like, you know, people followed, a lot of people actually kept through their, their path and they had a, a ratio that they wanted to get to, right? And money amounts, absolute amounts are different for different people too, right? Their needs and their, you know, if they were young with kids, sorry, if they had kids, they didn't have kids, like what kind of stage of life they were as well. Yeah. So you could see like Bitcoin literally shedding, right? Like and redistributing that early wealth and that early store of value through the system by people's time preference. Like it, it, it's like it's fascinating. Like and you and you see how Bitcoin really got distributed, right? Aside from the mining distribution, um, mm -hmm. and and a lot of these people who had even further sort of time preference concerns or they really wanted features they 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 did bitcoin disposition to sort of like go and create you know even honest products like honest projects of coins right like they wanted to sort of you know like colored coins on the beginning or or you know whatever it was like they wanted to do something else like equities or whatever and they were they saw enough value in that even if they understood bitcoin to sort of go that direction right and then and then you have all the people who didn't understand at all either and sort of like wanted to just sort of like go scam. <laughs> right? Like, and then there is a lot of people who lost everything. Shitcoining. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of like, and then they sort of been rebuilding, right? Like trying to, to come back into it and stuff. And, and it's fascinating to see this, which would <clears throat> normally happen through a few generations happening in 10 years. It, it, it's like, it's almost like evolution happening uh, 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 cognitive evolution happening, uh, uh, you know, in 10 years, self-selection happening in 10 years instead of a million years, uh, or at least a few thousand years for certain kinds of money, uh, uh, uh and seeing the, the people self-select, right? Bitcoin yeah. really self-selected for store of value people, right? For maxis. And then some folks that are more into the payments, but wanted to remain in Bitcoin sort of went really full lightning. Uh, and then, you know, the people who wanted to do equities and things like that ended up sort of in Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting to watch the separation of the people from the very beginning where there was just Bitcoin, right? And then sort of like spreading out into all these different things. Yeah. It is really interesting to consider how and why Bitcoin self-selects for certain things. Like as you were just saying, like low time preference curiosity, patience, I think humility, because, you know, that's almost a required trait if you're going to adopt something that you can't change, right? Where you're 
great smarts is not really all that relevant in terms of its nature. So you kind of have to humble yourself towards it and like all these other things that if you have those qualities, you're more likely to get Bitcoin and stay with Bitcoin and derive whatever benefits might come from that. But if you lack certain traits or you're, or if more traits are more pronounced than you, like, you know, you're, desire to move fast and break things, or maybe you have an ego and you, you think, oh, I can do it a million times better. And you go off and do that stuff. Then as you say, you get this like, uh, universe of like things that emerge as a result of other traits being more dominant in people, things that self-select for other traits. And this is why, as you said earlier, like we're probably always going to have shit coins because as powerful as the incentive structure in Bitcoin is going to be, and as powerful as its trait selection phenomenon is not everyone's going to uh respond to those uh, signals that it's sending out yeah i mean you can see this with with equities right like you see people making their first million dollar right and, and then going and selling to buy a house in, instead of like waiting for amazon to be like you know 40 times that and sort of mm -hmm. like you know like now having eternal wealth like yeah it, 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 it's just it's just fascinating how how short people are in their future, right? And and because Bitcoin happens so fast, like so fast. I mean, like this is unheard of for somebody to, crazy. to do this this fast, right? Mm -hmm. You see this through your friends or anecdotally, right? The people dropping off to accomplish life things, right? Mm -hmm. On like being short in their future. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes it, it's not even by choice, right? I mean, like, you know, people need sure. some medical treatment, right? And they had to dump it all. And the Bitcoin loan products were not available, right? Uh, but like, I, I still remember, it's like, do you pay off your house or do you do this, right? It, 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 it's like, you know, for me, it was obvious. <laughs> like, but like, but you know, in the early days of the business, I mean, we sold an absolute ton of BTC to invest in the business. Right, because yeah. we thought that we were smarter than the store of value, right? And and yeah. I'm not; I'm an idiot, right? It's, it's like <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's like you can't. Nothing will ever appreciate more than Bitcoin risk adjusted, mm. right? Once you risk adjust, which the risk in my business is me, right? It, it just simply does not return more than Bitcoin does. Mm -hmm. There, the Bitcoin yeah. is near zero risk. It's like once you accept that, it, 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 it's, it's, it changes everything in your life. Yeah, well, that, exactly. Right. And that's what's so fascinating about it. And, you know, it, 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 a big part of that is like, how long can you delay gratification? And as you say, I mean, you, the thing is, is, you don't always want to. You want to, I think the philosophy is kind of emerging that you want to as much as you can in relation to this thing because your future is going to be better as, as a result. And what do you know, like <clears throat> part of this cultural emergence around people that are involved in Bitcoin is delaying gratification as much as possible, like being, you know, for lack of a better term, humble in their material possessions, right? Because you want that energy, that capital, capital to be in Bitcoin such that you can have a greater future. But also begs the question, I think this is part of the phenomenon happening amongst Bitcoiners. It's like, well, what... Yes, delay gratification as much as possible. But what is it worth not delay? Wh which gratifications are worth not delaying? And I think when you're confronted with that question, you end up coming to answers like family, health, beauty, love, friendship, 
you know, these things that are not easily valued and not easily dismissed. And I, this is such a fascinating occurrence that I'm seeing is that these are the types of things that I see happening to a lot of Bitcoiners where they'll delay as much as possible the frivolous gratification. And then they'll amplify the truly valuable gratifications in their life such that now their life is basically composed of those priceless things. And they're doing everything they can to make sure that they're more able to have that type of life as far into the future as possible, because all other gratifications, they're delaying toward that purpose. You know why? It's really interesting. It's, it's, it's like the why of this is, is the, the most interesting part is that time, like Bitcoin is nearly the most scarce thing on earth, right? When you think about it, but time is scarcer. You only mm-hmm. have one life, right? So, and and you could get hit by a bus, right? So you're you you have to make an opportunity cost calculation, right, into that because like people did that a lot more back in the day. So they would sort of think like, you know, do I have kids now? Do I work a little harder now? Now that both parents work, right? So now that's even a bigger a bigger question because it's not like one parent is just going to stay with the kids. So you have to make those decisions. Right? Do I buy the house? Do I do this? Do I do that? And you know, do I take a vacation? You know, it's like I want to have that memory with my kid taking the vacation. Right? People think about those things, and because time is scarcer than Bitcoin, your time line is, is scarcer than Bitcoin. Um, it, you know, the way that opportunity cost calculation comes to each individual is is, is fascinating. Um, yeah. It's- yeah, and then it gets even more complicated because if you're trying to find cash flow and, and have a purpose in life, right? Aside from just stacking, how do you stack? How do you bring mon- like money onto your life to stack, right? Mm. If you're a, a business person, an inventor, somebody who requires capital to build things, you know, you have to do also an opportunity cost calculation. Like, in our case, like we wanted to create things, we wanted things to exist in the world, so we invested. Uh, we don't do that anymore, but we invested BTC in those, uh, and 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 that's how we built our company initially, right? Uh, we 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 tried to go the VC route. We thought about it, but it wasn't for us, right? Mm-hmm. This is not something that ever attracted us. We always sort of did it, did the VC raising in a way that we almost. Uh, uh, we were self-sabotaging ourselves to never accomplish the VC route. Uh, we absolutely hate that. And, <laughs> and, and and nothing against that. Like, I mean, I, I've done investments in other companies. I've done that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's just a, like for me as a business owner, as like a, like a, a company that makes things, like we, we like the freedom that comes with being our own self sort of entity, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, in some industries, you have no choice. You, you have to take the VC cash because otherwise you, you just, it's just economically impossible to go in the direction you want to go. Um, but then now you have to create opportunity cost calculations. Like, do I just take a McDonald's job? Right. Or, or especially for a younger person that doesn't even have a degree to go be a lawyer accountant to then stack. Because now it's like, do I buy BTC with my legal degree money? You know what I mean? It's, it's a very complicated calculator cost. It yeah. didn't exist before where you had a totally. choice. I think it's a it's an amazing choice and it's one that like a lot of opportunity lies on the other side of making it well. But I do think it's 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 
one that a lot of Bitcoiners are confronting, right? Because on the one hand, you have this like extreme impulse to stack, right? You know, like you, every sack counts, right? So stack as much as you can because you know your future is going to be better as a, as a result. But the present moment is really all we ever have, right? And, and so how are you going to find the balance between those two things? Because, you know, you're, Few, you know, it's difficult to predict the future, even one's own trajectory in their life, right? So it's like, well, like the decision you made, do we sell Bitcoin to invest in our business to maybe down the line have a business that earns Bitcoin and, you know, net net, we end up stacking more, but there's risk involved. But we also get a lifestyle where we get to build the stuff that we really like to build and it's fun and it's engaging and it's what we want to do. You know, these, these questions are not easy to answer. And I feel like, you know, now and especially into the future, a lot of people are going to be confronted with them. It's like, all right, like I've established a certain amount of base level fundamental security in my life. Okay, I'm not going to starve. My family's going to be good. All what that jazz. Yeah, but what? Like, I guess, I guess, what I'm getting at is like, what do I want to devote myself to? Like, what's a worthwhile cause, and how worthwhile is it? Is it worthwhile? taking some of Bitcoin, my Bitcoin out of my stash to facilitate it? Maybe, maybe not, you know, but these are the value judgments that Bitcoin is really like bringing front and center to, to people's minds to have to make. You know, as a tangent on that, it's kind of fascinating because in the early days, you couldn't get VC for any Bitcoin company. Like yeah. you were Bitcoiners who funded almost all Bitcoin businesses in the early days, right? So... If those Bitcoiners had not spent Bitcoin to fund those businesses, Bitcoin would not have taken off. Right. Like at right. all, because there had been no wallets. There had been no exchanges. There had been nothing. Right. Mm. So you can almost see their sacrifice in the redistribution of that initial distribution, right? In in this like fair way, right? Because these people gave up some of their future wealth to see the system happening, right? It's kind of a, it's like a, there's a karmic thing there that's really cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's kind of fascinating because, like, you know, if we had capped, there is absolutely no math that, like, that Bitcoin that, you know, we invested in the business, you know, it would have been worth more than the company, like, is, right? So it's like, you know, we developed, like, an awesome company. Uh, business is like, you know, uh, like financially, I'm fine, right? And the company is our hobby. Like, both me and Doc Hacks, like, this is what we want to do every day. It's like, I don't want to go ride horses. I want to go and build stuff, right? right? So, you know, in my mind, it's like, how do I build a economically self sustaining, growing, real business? Right, mm -hmm. so that I can afford to create stuff without having to spend my own capital, right? Like, and, and this is sort of like how we arrived at the second phase of CoinKite. <laughs> right? Yeah, the second, the second go at this when we started sort of making just the hardware and stuff was like, okay, great, you know, we want to just do stuff because we want to do stuff, but we mm -hmm. don't want this to be a hobby. Like, it needs yeah. to be self-sustaining. Sure. Yeah, and you know, your point about the VCs and the early distributions of like early Bitcoin investors you know, that's, I always, I'm, I always find the, uh, you know, the fiat economists who chirp up and, and talk about like, well, of a deflationary currency, nobody's going to spend anything and everyone's going to hoard and the economies are going to collapse. 
I always find it such a lazy argument because what I see happening is just there being more pressure put on the value that that capital is going to be allocated to generating or expressing in some way. So it's not that you don't get action. You're always going to get action. It's just that it gets put through a different value framework. And I think what this does when there's something, when there's capital that you want to hold on to so much, it just means that whatever you end up devoting it to, whether you're an investor or it's in your own business or your own life, it just means that you expect more from that thing that you do. So like for you example, like you created not just a, a cash flow business, but a lifestyle that you that you enjoy engaging in. And that's really worthwhile. That's worth spending some of your Bitcoin. And I, yeah. I guess that's the point I was making earlier. It's like, we all are going to confront that situation where it's like, there's going to be things that we want to establish in our life that are going to be worth spending the Bitcoin on. All that, The only difference is that those things are going to be of a higher order value than our, our benchmark or our bar for spending fiat on because we value what we're spending, the, the capital that we're spending more. And so we expect a higher value return. You know, this was many, many years ago. I still remember the call with this VC, I think it was Adam Draper. And, you know, I explained to him like the plans of the company and blah, blah, blah. And it, we weren't raising, I think they, they requested the call, right? Uh, and, and, and he looked at me, he's like, so this is a lifestyle business. I'm like, yeah, it's a lifestyle business. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that stuck to me like forever. Like, I, you know, like I never forgot that because, you know, every time we were sort of thinking like, do we grow more because we want to, you know, there is business things in R&D that require like huge amounts of money, right? We can do those now, but like in those days we couldn't unless we either raised or sort of, you know, you couldn't even get debt. So like, you know, yeah. it was either raise or wait, right? And grow. So um, it was it was just interesting to sort of like always have that in the back of my mind. It's like even the VCs can see through it. <laughs> like It's like, yeah, like we, we want to create a lifestyle business that's like reasonably large so that we can do big things in a yeah. lifestyle way. Mm -hmm. I, I love... I can imagine what that phone call was like, but I, I love the emerging attitude, whether you're a Bitcoiner who started a business and you're speaking to investors, or maybe you're a Bitcoiner who's an employee or a prospective employee at a company. And like you can, I, I think you can go into these things so much more matter of fact, because if you've been in the space for a while, like you don't have... You don't need whatever's being offered as much as like your average person. So you can just plainly say, look, I'm here because this is really meaningful to me. And, you know, this is uh, this is what I think my worth is or this is what I think my company's worth is. What do you think? You know, no pressure. Like it well, is, it isn't, you know, it's negotiating 101, right? Like whoever right, can walk, right, right. walk out of the table, <laughs> you know, probably is going to get something right. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, um, you really, I, I think, especially young people who, who are in tech greatly uh, um, underappreciate the freedom you get by not having investors, even with all the challenges that that come, right? Uh, that, that nearly free money, really, it, it's not free, right? Yeah. Like, uh, what Steve Barber calls the fiat maxis. Once they get their uh, their hooks in your business, then things change a little bit. 
it, or maybe it's, a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like growing a business, we're, we're very old school that way, right? Like we 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 believe that, like you know, you, you work and then you make a thing, and then you find a way of making that thing very efficiently, and then you sell that thing for a profit, and then. And then you make a profit. <laughs> Mind blowing. And then you get that profit and you reinvest, you know, if it doesn't come as BTC, like we, you know, whenever we have spare operational fiat, we also buy BTC with that. And then you reinvest <laughs> it and then you grow and then you create more things that have value and have profit, right? Like it, it, it's such a, a foreign thing when you try <laughs> to explain this to like people in tech, like, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating, and and this sort of spilled over, right? We were trying to think of ways in which we can attract talent, right, to the company. Um, without, like, cause, you know, we still we don't li- we don't exist in the in 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 uh, in a vacuum, right? We still have to compete with VC backed companies, right? Mm. And VC backed companies have like essentially access to infinite capital, right? So they can pay extremely high salaries. They can, uh, you know, they can offer a bunch of stupid shit like free cereal and whatever it is, right? And most importantly, they essentially like have this this bullshit thing where they say they're gonna get like you know they give all the staff like you know convertible note, right? So equity, it's not really equity, but like it's kind of like equity, right? Yeah. So like, yeah, we're going to pay you, I don't know, like $100,000 a year and, and we'll pay you another $100,000 in equity every year, right? But the thing is, you know, a thousand to one startups fail. So you're never going to see that equity be worth anything, right? Like in, in the great, great majority of cases. And, and even if you do, you're going to get diluted. <laughs> right? So there is like a lot of bullshit that happens with the employee pool, right? Uh, of option, right? So we're like, we are hard money people, right? We want to do this in a way that's not bullshit. So what we did is when you join us, we buy BTC depending on your salary range, right? Like, and it's a fair bit. Um, And we use the exact same cliff schedule as startups use for distribution of, (laughs) for, for, for essentially vesting of shares. So like, but I can't remember if it's four or five years if a cliff, right? Yeah. On hours, for uh, for the shares, this for the share vesting, we essentially distribute that BTC that was bought for you, denominated in BTC. That's brilliant, right? So so then you know after your first, the second year or whatever, like it's like boom, like you get like you know some. Decent money Maybe now a because lot. <laughs> there's two years of appreciation in the BTC. And if you're lucky, it's a bear market. So that your you, bonus tax-wise looks tiny. It, you know, it's great for us because it looks tiny too. But then we don't even distribute that. We just buy BTC on the spot mm. for you, right? On that amount. And and like everybody wins. And and it, it, it's just like it's just so cool that you can do these things now instead of doing the bullshit. Yeah. Totally agree. You know, on on all this that we've been talking about, uh, how Bitcoin, uh, well, how Bitcoin changes you, has it changed you much? You know, since you've been involved in any discernible way. 
Yeah, I mean, totally. Like, you know, like you can ask my wife. It's like, you know, it's like living with a crazy person, right? Like, it's like you have this person who has a view of the world, right? Um, and 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 then this person sort of like progresses like to this other sort of view of the world in a certain speed that doesn't necessarily follow the everybody around them, right? And 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 it's just. Bitcoin changes you, right? Like, I mean, unless unless you're like Beatstein, who was born an Austrian economist, right? Like on the first, like, you know, I think he probably recited uh, uh, Rothbard like before he was even crying to breathe Bedtime as a stories. baby, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, like he literally, like the doctor tapped him upside down, you know, in the hospital and he's like, he's like uh, human action. <laughs> you, you know, like... It's like I was still raised, like you know, in Brazil, and I was still raised, like you know, like my everybody in my family is business people. There's nobody employed in my family, right? But it's still like you know, we we cared about you know certain social issues and things like that. So it's it's not like you know, and libertarianism was not something huge, right? So it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the options politically, where you align yourself and things like that, it's not, there's no place for you, right? So, like, you know, I always saw myself as for freedom, right? And, and, you know, for a long time, like, you know, the left side of the spectrum sort of like afforded social freedoms to people, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, At the expense of their future. But aside from that, it's like, (laughs) right? Side note. (laughs) Exactly. So, like, you know, Bitcoin just like, because you had this finally like this this personal security, right? It's like when you have fiat in the bank account and you think about political calculation or, or like political thinking, like philosophy and things like that, um, you know, you're thinking in terms of like, you know, if I vote for this party, right, I get more of this or that. Like, you know, like all the political things affect your bank account, affect your job. When I got into Bitcoin, none of the noise affected my economical life anymore. So I could think clearly and find my so own nice. footing economically and, and like like psychologically, really. Because your shit doesn't affect me anymore. Now I laugh if it goes up or down and if you want to go right or left or whatever. It's like, I don't care. It, it, it has mm-hmm. zero effect on me. So my thinking doesn't have to to, to like to be exposed to your shit, right? So so it's just the clarity of thinking that comes from that, right? And yeah, that never man. ends. I mean, like... It's the Bitcoin's end, you know? You just... as you, you nailed it. Clarity. You know, this engaging in this thing, using it as your unit of account, using it as your fundamental, you know, foundation of financial security bestows a clarity that you can then use to devote to other things. You know, you don't have to get caught up in the noise of everything and how distracting and... uh tiring cognitively it can be uh when did you realize that this thing was this protocol on the internet was actually changing who you are because that's a weird thing to realize right i i I don't think there is like a moment right it's just that like there there is this one million moments right uh, of like every little aspect of your life that sort of changes because it, it literally changed right so so like you know, it's like you have this call with this VC who wants to invest in your company and the guy says a lifestyle business. Yeah, it's a lifestyle <laughs> business. Yeah, right? Or, or like, 
you know, the bank doesn't want to give me a mortgage. I'm like, you know, I just go to like, you know, a Bitcoin backed company and I, I like borrow from them. And it's like the bank politics or whatever doesn't affect me anymore. It's like once you free your capital, you free your energy to do whatever the fuck you want. Right. And nobody has a say. The only limitation is your own now. Right. So it's like it's your own sort of like it's your economical capacity, it's your work capacity, right? It's like, how much can you achieve by yourself? Because, see, this was always incomplete to me about libertarian thought, right? It was always like this sort of like abstract thinking because at the end of the day, the dollar won and the gold and gold lost. Right? It was always like LARPing. Mm -hmm. Right, it's like these people playing with thought and blah blah blah. But at the same time, they have to have a political party to try to whatever, and they're always going to lose. And and it's always been this sort of cute, sort of you know the naked dude running in Las Vegas, right? In the in the Libertarian Conference, right? The, the, if you ever been to one of those, there is always that one guy, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and that's how I always saw Libertarian thought as this like naked comedic thing, uh, because it has no teeth. Mm -hmm. right? It has no place to go. You're going to lose, right? Because your kind of thinking of freedom doesn't have enough power to prevent everybody else from influencing your life, right? But what Bitcoin did is like it creates this fucking like, like uh, uh, invisible shield where to a certain extent, of course, right? Like it does protect you from all their bullshit. So in practice, you're now free or, or you have a, a greater degree of freedom. And, and, and so when you're thinking about th this, this stuff, right? Like uh, either intellectually, philosophically, or, or just practically, like it is true as opposed to it is intellectual masturbation. Yeah. Gives the cause for freedom, a cause of freedom, some teeth, finally, you know, some, some enforceability, something yeah, like that. It, it's, uh, it's pretty much that. Um, I'm going to let you go now in a few seconds, uh, Rodolfo, but I got to ask, I see a block clock mini behind you. This is one of the toys that's become super popular, uh, probably around the world, but certainly around Bitcoin circles. And, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey, former CEO of Twitter, hardcore Bitcoiner had it, uh, behind his right shoulder at his, uh, congressional hearing, I think it was. And of course, there was a lot of conjecture afterwards about what the number meant, and it became a conspiracy that Jack is in league with the Russians in some way, and this was the time in Moscow, and now we have the wonderful meme of, of Moscow time for sats per dollar, which I am forever grateful for. But what, what, what was it like to see you know, a, a, a toy, basically, a project that you just dreamt up because it's something you wanted you know, behind one of the you know, I, I don't like to characterize them this way, but one of the most influential or wealthy people, you know, in the world and certainly someone who's also down for the cause that you're, you're interested in. What was it like seeing that? It, it, it was kind of uh, uh, funny. Um, so we, we met a couple of years ago and uh, you know, we had some, some decent time chatting and uh, you know, like I was like, shit, the guy is like a legit Bitcoiner, like, <laughs> like for real, like not bullshitting. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, and, and then, you know, Square bought some, some open dimes and they were sort of distributing their office and stuff. And, you know, and sort of like they were playing cold cards and stuff. And, and then, you know, like I'm, I'm watching the, the hearing thing and it's like, 
you know, the clock is there and it's like, there's all this, like this drama going on around the, the muscle <laughs> time thing. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it wasn't like planned or anything. Like he didn't tell us that he was going to have the clock behind him or, or it was completely out of left field. And, and I, you know, like I, I, I'm certain he's a very deliberate, thoughtful guy. So I'm certain he put the clock behind him on purpose. Yeah. Um, but um, it's just funny that like, you know, I, I don't think anybody could have imagined that some nut job would come up with, with such a, a quality meme. Uh, <laughs> like it was just beautiful. Uh, uh, and, you know, and then like some of the articles around it are pretty funny too, because some, some of the, the, the tech publications are fairly lefty and they made fun of us as a company too, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, sending us traffic. Listen, I'll take the traffic. What, uh, what did they say about you? I just, just like, you know, this like weird clock from these weird people and like, you know, and they have this calculator and like, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, listen, if you're not a Bitcoiner and you come to our store and you look at our products, it's things gonna look, look a bit weird. You know, <laughs> I had, I had this guy on Twitter, uh, sort of like, uh, uh, he was pretty happy. He received his, his cold card in the mail for Christmas. Right. And he was like saying it's alien tech. Right. And, and that to me is like the compliment right there. It's like, right. we, we have this weird stuff that serves the purpose for the people who understand it. Uh, and if you don't understand it, you're just not ready for it yet. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I, I think the, the, the thing was, it was the representation that with the meme, you know, people were not ready to see that weird time thing. And, and, and you know, they immediately sort of like went into this completely absurd story. Um, it was it was pretty cool. Not not everybody's ready for Moscow time. Um, last one for you, man. What's uh, what's on the horizon for you guys? You know, are there, are there new uh, new projects in the works? New products coming out soon? What's what, where's your focus these days? So uh, we're <laughs> like laser focused now on on getting Mark Four Cold Card Mark Four out. It's going to have NFC on it, which is really cool. Or for people to to be able to tap on their phones and sort of like transact uh, uh, operational wallets, um, and uh, the people who use it for multi-sig are pretty pumped because now it's infinite memory, so like you don't have to worry about transaction size and that kind of stuff. It's it's a big deal, um, and uh, and we have a, a couple other projects that we keep on hinting, but you know we haven't sort of we just keep on teasing because we're still making it, but, it, but it's like we can't help ourselves. We want to sort of like. We want to tell everybody, but not quite yet. Uh, so, so we're working on 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 these two uh, 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 smart card based uh, uh, projects that uh, that uh, uh, are a big deal because they they will be economically more aligned with the market. Uh, so, uh, I, I think I think they uh, they will help the next batch of users come into Bitcoin that are more price sensitive. And need things a little bit more dumbed down. Um, so, so we're sort of like you know we're trying to please ourselves with cold card. Like it's like this product is made absolutely for us. Everybody <clears throat> else is a second <laughs> in in how it works. And then we have this other product. Sort of like okay, great. We want like everybody to be happy too. Uh, mm. And it's sort of like trying to to balance that out. Right. Right. Nice. Well. We'll all anxiously await uh, the drops of these things because I'm sure they're going to be great. Like so much of the other stuff you guys have uh, have built has been. Uh, and man, I really appreciate the time. It's always fun to jam. 
hear more of the story, talk about all this stuff that we both uh, love so much. So thanks uh, for joining me today. And uh, any last words before we shut it down? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, this was this was a pleasure. You're still one of the the best interviewers in the in the business. Like <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a it's a great conversation style. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, if people want to find me, just NVK on Twitter and uh, and Aquinkite and all that stuff, you guys can find online. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, man. And we'll have to have you back in six to 12 months when there's new goodies on the market for you to come and, uh, and talk about. Will do. All right, brother. Take care. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion with Rodolfo. It's awesome for me to get the chance to speak with someone like him who's been around for so long uh, and been around before me so I can probe uh, their history and their memory to try to get a better perspective on what things were like back then. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at NVK and visit coinkite.com to learn more about their awesome products. Also for those value for value listeners out there, Boostergrams have now been implemented into the CT website. This means that when you send a boost in your podcasting 2.0 enabled app, you can type in a message that will appear on our podcast page, assuming it's nice and okayed by the mods, of course. Anyways, give it a whirl. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.